Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this uh, event here today at the Institute for Government. My name's Hannah White, and I'm director of the Institute. And I'm really pleased to be launching today's day of discussions on the very important topic of net zero. And I'd also like to thank Deloitte for uh, supporting the conference here today. It's great to see such an excellent audience here, and I know we have hundreds of people joining us online, so welcome to you all too. Um, we'll be live tweeting the event from IFG Events uh, using the hashtag IFG Net Zero, so please do follow and tweet along if you're still sticking with Twitter. Um, and if you're online, you can send in your qu uh, questions for all the panels and, and speeches um, using Slido. Uh, if you're in the room, you can ask your questions live. So, reaching net zero and preparing for the impacts of climate change is obviously one of the biggest challenges that governments all over the world are following. And that's why we here at the Institute three years ago set up a program dedicated to examining the role of government in delivering net zero. And our view then, as it is now, was that such a long-term economy-wide challenge would require fresh thinking about how government should be organised to deliver a program and a, and a, against a target of this scale. Now, the current government is right to claim that the UK has a strong record on climate. We've achieved the fastest reduction in emissions of any major economy. We were the first via the 2008 Climate Change Act to set a binding climate target in law and to set up an independent climate change committee, which has been emulated since around the world. And we've been a world leader in deploying offshore wind and developing the right policies and market mechanisms to enable that a topic on which we recently held a really fascinating policy reunion to which we invited uh, the civil servants and the politicians and other people who'd been involved in delivering that policy. And there'll be a report out on that in the autumn, so look out for that. But the Climate Change Committee is right too to argue that the UK's record of climate leadership is currently at risk. There are still many areas where the path forward remains unclear. And we at the IFG have been particularly focused on the importance of having a robust plan in place which sets out year by year and sector by sector the policies and progress that will be needed to reach the targets. We think this is vital to give investors and businesses the confidence they need to deliver the changes we need to see. And to give just one example, it's hard to see how progress on home heating will accelerate without clarity from government on which technologies will be best suited in different places. A robust and detailed plan is also important to create clarity about what parts of government are responsible for delivering what, and um, and to ensure that they can be held to account. And the reason we organised this conference today is to discuss these questions about getting on track for net zero, but also about seizing the benefits of net zero through domestic green industries, particularly following the major subsidies announced by the US and the EU. And with both Rishi Sunak and Kirstama pledging to hit ambitious emissions targets and make the UK a clean energy superpower, we expect these will be central questions as we approach an election next year. And that's why we're holding the conference today and why I'm really delighted to welcome Chris Skidmore here to give us uh, an opening keynote speech. Chris has been Conservative MP for Kingswood since May 2010 and has held a number of different ministerial roles, including Minister of State for Universities, Science, Research and Innovation. Most importantly, of course, for today's purposes, he served as chair of the Independent Government Review on Net Zero. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing his remarks today. Thank you, uh, Hannah, and thank you to the uh, Institute for Government for holding this Net Zero uh, conference at such an important and opportune uh, moment. 
roughly sort of four years ago, I was the, the then energy minister uh, responsible for signing the UK's net zero uh, targets uh, into law. Uh, I was able to do so on the back of the uh, Climate Change Act, uh, making a stature instrument change to the 80% emissions reduction on 1990 levels set out uh, in that act from 2008, and upping that to 100%, which equated to the UK delivering a net zero uh, emissions by 2050 uh, commitment uh, into law. And we became the first uh, G7 country uh, to do so. We beat France uh, by one uh, single day. And uh, the result of that uh, signing net zero into law, I didn't think I properly sort of appreciated what we'd done. I knew at the time that we had events, uh, short-term priorities, uh, you may remember other things were going on in politics at that moment. Theresa May's Brexit deal had failed to get across the line and she had resigned. And she was keen to look for other areas, non-Brexit focused, as I'd always told the Conservative Party, focusing just on Brexit was always going to be you know, a recipe for disaster. Uh, but instead, that we had this opportunity to make real impactful change. Uh, and so we took through uh, the net zero uh, legislation in that month of June uh, 2019. Uh, and that almost sort of overnight allowed me to really ramp up our bid for uh, COP26. And you have all these sort of secrets, well, not, not secret, but sort of these phone calls, these bilateral calls with ministers. And, and almost overnight, countries then began to say, you know, actually, you know, the UK has demonstrated real leadership here. You know, we will back your bid for COP26. I was also the minister able to get that bid successfully uh, announced uh, at the end of June uh, 2019. But I think if you told me then in June 2019, 48 months ago, that now I think it's 92% of the world's GDP, I think the Oxford Net Zero Tracker announced that this week, uh, in 80% of all countries, 40% uh, of all international companies would be now signed up to a net zero target of some form, uh, that we'd be having conferences dedicated to net zero taking place, you know, not weekly, almost daily it seems sometimes. They say that the interest now in focusing on what needs to be achieved to decarbonize not just nations, but sectors, it would have taken me uh, by surprise. I had, uh, as Hannah said, an opportunity to sort of not quite come back into government, but to act as a independent uh, chair of net zero. Uh, again, I'll just go briefly into the politics of this, but sometimes I don't think you can divorce the, you know, the politics from the policy. And it's important, I think, also to reflect on the politics when you want to be able to effectively deliver on some of your commitments uh, for the future. Uh, but there was a leadership contest, you may remember, uh, that took place uh, over the summer. And I decided for me that the priority would not be one candidate or another, but it would be to hold those candidates to account on their net zero commitment. I was concerned that net zero might hit the cutting room floor. There was a number of uh, candidates uh, who were talking about net zero being an arbitrary uh, target other candidates seeking to push net zero potentially back uh, to 2070. Uh, and I didn't want this to be some kind of sacrificial lamb as a result of the Conservative Party leadership contest. So I held all candidates to account, organized the climate hustings, I got Alex Sharma to chair, created a Conservative uh, Environment Pledge which committed all candidates to sign it, and that meant the, the final three uh, to net zero. Uh, and in the end, when uh, Liz Truss uh, won the contest, uh, she, in the hustings, said she wanted to do net zero, but she wanted to do it in a way that was uh, pro-business, pro-growth, uh, efficient uh, and affordable. Uh, so I was asked, well, firstly, I was asked whether I'd come back into government, uh, which I decided 
potentially that I wasn't keen to do. Uh, but instead, how about I lead an independent review on our net zero uh, commitment? Uh, because you may remember also that the net zero strategy that was published in 2021 had nothing to do with it. Uh, I was out of government at that stage, was then found to be legally deficient by the High Court with the uh, Client Earth's uh, case brought against them. So the net zero review sort of suddenly then took on extra momentum in not just sort of looking again at our individual policies and whether we were on track, and I'll come on back to the what needs to be on track, but also to look at how we could potentially as a government deliver on the High Court judgment and demonstrate that our legal pathway uh, to net zero uh, was sufficient. And taking the sort of net zero review forwards, uh, this was my sort of, I felt, last chance to, to influence uh, policy. I'm standing down at the next general election, my constituencies uh, being abolished. So I was determined to throw everything at it. Uh, and I was given an end date of, of the end of the year uh, to finish the review. So it was just three months. And I slightly balked at this, but in the end, I felt that three months is 1% of our journey to net zero anyway. And I think it was testament to the power of having a mandate of the deadline that we were going to commit to focusing you know, as much uh, as possible on doing this 24-7. You know, and I also sort of felt that when we took the review forwards, that I needed this to be seen as like the largest engagement exercise at, you know, on net zero. One of the challenges I felt for net zero is because of the pace at which we sought to get it through the House of Commons, yes, it was recommended by the CCC and obviously huge wealth of scientific uh, evidence behind why we should achieve the target. But we never set out a cost-benefit analysis. You know, we, we took forward the recommendation. We had sort of ballpark figures over sort of overall costs and what would be needed. But we never really articulated the benefits of demonstrating actually this transition is also a transformation. And so I was determined to ensure, coming back in to chair this independent review, that I got an opportunity to reset the narrative. The net zero is not simply an environmental tool, essential though it is to balance our emissions to meet the 1.5 degrees global warming pathway as, you know, as set out uh, in the sort of 2018 uh, documentation that came off the back of uh, Paris Agreement. But at the same time, how can we demonstrate that net zero and this transition that is needed is the economic opportunity, is a prize to be seized? As I said, 92% now of the world's GDP signing up to a form of net zero. There are boardrooms meeting this morning across the globe, taking decisions over future investments. And those investments are, regardless of what governments say, increasingly being made through the frameworks of looking at whether these projects, these investments, are going to meet net zero targets. They are going to demonstrate how they're going to decarbonize. So actually, you know, the government can talk about whether it wants to commit to net zero or not. It's happening anyway. Net zero is here to stay. And trying to demonstrate that there is this wall of inward private capital investment waiting to be spent, and it will be spent elsewhere if the UK chooses a not zero path, to demonstrate that now we are in this global net zero race was absolutely critical for uh, the net zero review. I've served, I think, in five departments, and as I said, I've been a member of parliament for 14 years and was involved in policy for many years before that. And you know, MPs and government ministers are presented with policy documents weekly, if not daily, and you, know, you have a sort of stack of 
documents that come through the post and you feel slightly ashamed that there's quite a lot of them go in the recycling bucket. But the challenge, I think, for everyone here as policymakers is how do you get cut through? How do you have impact? Simply having a shopping list of policy recommendations you know, amongst all of the content that's generated today, both physically and online, makes it increasingly difficult. I needed to sort of work out when it came to net zero, how was I going to sort of demonstrate that this is a fundamental shift in our economic behavior for businesses, they can become more efficient, more productive, that even if there wasn't a climate crisis, which there clearly is, we should be doing net zero for the opportunity it presents us in terms of the materials revolution, in terms of the way we work, in terms of the way that we force energy and the way we think about energy for the future, fundamentally changing our relationship, not just with the natural world, but also the technological world also. And the pace of technological change, recognizing that at every point we need to look at our systems, our institutions, our regulations and legislation and act, is it, is it fit for a net zero world? So many of the things in which we live in today, work and operate, you know, were created in a past where sustainability was not a core purpose and recognizing that the dial has shifted is absolutely vital. So part one of the uh, net zero review uh, was creating this new narrative that this is an opportunity and trying to create and synthesize a large body of work that makes the economic case for why we should do net zero. And that's no different from what obviously Joe Biden uh, and his team have done in the United States. And it was serendipitous that as I was taking forward the consultation of the net zero review, we had the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, making that case that every second job is a job in the energy transition. Not necessarily talking about green jobs as some kind of other job, but talking about the engineers, the technicians, you know, the, the retrofitters who are needed, who will be essential as part of our journey. And making this about people, about communities, recognizing that sense of place and the opportunity for regeneration and economic opportunities across every corner of the country. And to demonstrate that, I also sort of felt I had to get out of Westminster. I know we're having this meeting here, but there's 750 people online across uh, the country and you know, technological innovation, Having 52 evidence roundtables, many of which obviously were uh, on Zoom, allowed me to reach out uh, to well over 1,000 uh, people, individuals, uh, and organizations across uh, the UK. Uh, as I said, 52 roundtables, we received uh, 1,800 written uh, submissions. And I went to every devolved nation uh, and every region in England to almost earn the right to be heard. I think sometimes also when it comes to policy, we've talked about the politics, the second thing you want to focus on is the process. Process is as important as the recommendations itself. And framing the review in a way that was inclusive and independent was incredibly important. So, yes, I'm a Conservative Member of Parliament. Actually, during the review, I nearly became an independent MP on the back of this sort of fracking vote that you may remember was turned into a no-confidence vote. And I had to take my own personal decision you know, not to back the confidence vote because I prioritised... Uh, my commitments uh, towards uh, net zero uh, instead. And I fully pre was prepared uh, to be sacked the next day. Uh, but like a sort of thief on the scaffold, suddenly the Prime Minister uh, was sort of resigned herself and I was left in post. But that allowed me to then meet with every political party. I went to see the SNP in Scotland, the Welsh Government in Wales, met frequently with the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, uh, Caroline Lucas of the Greens to try to set out sort of you know, what would they want to achieve themselves if they had formed administration. Because it comes back to the point that Hannah made at the beginning. We need not just additional investment, 
and we can talk about the you know, 370 billion pounds for the Inflation Reduction Act and the trillion euros for the EU Green Deal. And obviously investment is important and recognising upfront investment is a payback that will set a rate of return, just as in the way private investors see this opportunity for a rate of return in upfront investments in climate uh, projects and net zero uh, opportunities. But to recognise that we need the certainty, the clarity, the consistency and the continuity of policy frameworks if we're to succeed. And to achieve that, we need to have bipartisanship. If climate in the UK has always been a cross-party uh, framework. Taking action on climate change. It was the Conservative Party in opposition that pushed the Labour Party to go further, to uprate their plans from 60% emissions reduction on 1990 levels to 80% emissions reduction levels. And that's allowed industry and businesses to look at the UK and say, you are a stable policy-making uh, environment that comes up with a long-term pathways of regulatory certainty, of legislative certainty. This is a place that we can do business. And I'm absolutely determined to ensure that whatever happens at the next general election, whoever comes into government, they, after all, there'll be the administration that sees through our commitment on our NDC for 2030. It'll be under their stewardship that that happens. It'll be under their stewardship whether we meet the ZEV mandate for electric vehicles or whether we meet the 600,000 uh, deployment of heat pump uh, targets. So net zero is not about 2050. It was never about 2050. It is about halving our emissions by 2030 and focusing on those NDCs and focusing on those mandates. And the Net Zero Review set out a framework, which was not to review Net Zero, but to create a six-pillared approach. And apologies for those who've gone through the review. I don't want to sort of you know, repeat myself here. But what I wanted to do was say, what are the foundations that we need to strengthen in order to meet not just Net Zero, but our more immediate sort of targets and commitments that the government has made? How can we put guardrails around these policies and demonstrate how we can make sustainability itself sustainable? Uh, and so we had securing Net Zero as pillar one, critical for thinking almost under the bonnet about all those issues around grid, capacity, storage, planning, uh, accountability, transparency, better data, what is needed in order to ensure that the policies can be held accountable and also can be delivered on time and, and on budget. Then pillar two, net, powering net zero, asking each sector in turn, and again, I was technology agnostic, but asking each sector, you know, what are the challenges? What is the debris on the tracks that are stopping you from, from achieving what you need to achieve? Um, but also, yeah, what is your level of ambition so that we don't see in net zero um, targets and ambitions you know, being a ceiling? You know, they need to be a floor. And if we can go further, faster, we've got to enable uh, people to do so. So pillar three was net zero in the economy, specifically asking sectors of our economy you know, what they would you know, be able to do further, faster, but also targeting those hard-to-abate sectors, agriculture, uh, transport, uh, energy intensives, uh, and, and approaching this with an honesty that recognises you're not going to be steamrolling net zero uh, through these sectors. You know, net zero will fail if we see it as a top-down project in which government is imposing its will on people and communities. And that's why Pillar 4 I think, you know, for me, is one of the most important pillars of the Net Zero Review, which is how do you take a place-based approach to Net Zero? All the evidence points to the fact that actually delivering uh, community-led projects and also regional government-led projects can deliver not just you know, extra pace on decarbonisation, can deliver extra support by building that sort of consent into understanding actually that the question around ownership for Net Zero is absolutely vital. But also it reduces cost. So understanding how actually we can allow cities and regions to go further, faster, and support those that maybe need additional support is really important. And then pillar five was net zero, the individual householder. 
thinking through, you know, what are the retail offers to demonstrate that this transition is coming, but it's not an exceptional transition. You know, we what is exceptional is obviously the climate crisis that we face. But you know, as a society, as, as human beings, we've all gone through many transitions in our lives. We can look back to the fact that we gave up our DVD collection for Netflix. We can look you know, at the fact that we all, at one point, moved from those tubular TVs to flat screen TVs when the price point came down. And it's no different from when you're looking at the technologies such as heat pumps, uh, insulation, or electric vehicles. You know, we have seen change in the past, and we will see change in the future. How we manage that change in a way that we can demonstrate that it is for the benefit and the economic benefit of households and individuals will be critical. And obviously the role of private finance in creating products that can demonstrate how to incentivize change is, will be critical. And then pillar six was net zero in the future. Because again, you know, it's easy for politicians just to have their headlights focused on today and the next couple of years. One of the challenges, obviously, for net, uh, net zero is we've got to break out of this spending review cycle that is stymieing uh, investment. Yeah, in Germany, you've got the KFW program, 10-year program uh, focusing on energy insulation, guaranteed commitment of investment. We now have a 10-year hydrogen strategy uh, worth 10 billion euros in Germany. Yeah, in contrast, we've got a three-year hydrogen innovation fund in the UK worth 240 million pounds. In the US, the most important thing for me around the Inflation Reduction Act is not the money, it's the fact that the 45Q tax credit is guaranteed to the 1st of January 2033. Having that certainty and programmatic approach, as I said, the four C's, allows you to secure the fifth C, which is confidence, confidence of the business community, confidence of local communities, that this change must happen, will happen, and will make them better off, will make them you know, warm, you know, will actually make them richer uh, and not poorer. And in terms of the, the review, uh, we made 129 recommendations uh, overall, uh, focusing on uh, every sector. And obviously some of those were, all the recommendations were set by a timescale. I think 70 were to be achieved uh, by 2025 in some way, begun. We set out a 25 by 25 framework for the 25 policies to be completed before the next uh, general election. And the government's agreed to 20 four of them now. They initially didn't agree to have a net zero duty on off-gen, but they've changed their mind on that. So it's just like the methane flaring ban uh, to be brought forward to 2025, which is the last one of that, which I put as an amendment uh, in the energy uh, bill. Uh, but I think my own calculation showed the government's probably taken on, uh, with an agreement to the timescale, about 70 of the recommendations. They've agreed to an additional 30 recommendations, but not on the timescale, and they've refused around 29 uh, recommendations and those uh, include things like a statutory duty on local authorities for net zero, which I think even the local uh, authority community is undecided on. And I think that's also important to recognise that not all these decisions you know, are for government to take. They still haven't quite got the agreement amongst sectors about what that pathway uh, will look like. Sadly, some of the other areas were on oil and gas. You know, a, a large number of, of recommendations to go further, faster on decarbonisation of oil and gas sector. Uh, you know, were rejected, uh, but we have to be honest with ourselves that if we're going to achieve net zero and ask every other sector, if we're going to create a net zero power grid by 2035, we can't be in a place where oil and gas is still rumbling on to 2050 and not taking the steps needed where other sectors have been asked to, to step in. But overall, the uh, net zero reviews uh, mission, yeah, it was mission zero was the title, was to set out a sort of 10, 10 year missions. When I was science minister, as Hannah mentioned, I was the last minister to take through the UK's involvement in establishing the regulations for, for Horizon Europe. And we got Mariana Mazzucato to help advise 
on that, and it's creating those, that mission-orientated approach that sets an outcome. You know, what is the goal? What is the, 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 out, the, the destination that you wish to travel to? And so sort of setting that in place across a 10-year horizon to de-risk the opportunity for private industry to come in, to recognize that certainty that governments of any color should commit to. And that, for me, is the next sort of challenge for Mission Zero Review, building up cross-party uh, support for some of those missions. Yeah, we've got both parties agreeing to a net zero grid, this government by 2035, Labour by 2030. Uh, yeah, we need to go far further in, in providing the detail of how to deliver that. But we need similar missions in other sectors uh, also uh, for the future. And I'm determined to sort of carry on this work uh, into next year, uh, into the next general election, to make sure <laughs> that all political parties continue to prioritise net zero and, again, put it on the front page of their manifestos. Uh, thanks very much. I'll take some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm going to ask a few questions. Uh, we've got some questions coming in online already, so do keep those coming, and we'll t also take some questions from the room. There will be a roving microphone, um, and uh, so when we get to that point, do... Make sure you tell us who you are and where you're from so we can understand that. Um, Chris, so the climate, you, you talked about the, the uh, recommendations that you made that the government has, has, has agreed to, but the Climate Change Committee last week was, was pretty critical um, and actually said that what it had seen from the government had reduced its confidence in the ability of, of, of the government to, to deliver against those. Do you share that analysis? So I think the, the CCC's... Uh, analysis, I think, stated they'd in increase their confidence that they would meet their targets to 2027, but then would decrease their confidence that from 2027 onwards they had a plan. And, and Grant Sharps, again, I think you know, when the government published that sort of energy or Green Day, the vast you know, amount of documentation buried in those 2,000 pages, was the government hasn't got 100% sort of guarantee on the policies at the moment that they can meet their 2030 national determined contribution of 68%. Yeah, emissions uh, reduction. So I think even the government has sort of tacitly uh, admitted that I think they're at 95% of, of, of the way there. And that's if they do everything. Mm. And that's, there is a big question, obviously, yeah, around that sort of uh, delivery also. So I think I welcome you know, the opportunity for the CCC to provide independent challenge to set out which are the particular departments that are falling backwards. But it, I think, for me, reiterates why keeping obviously the work of the CCC in place you know, as a monitoring body is important, but we do need also an office for net zero delivery. I think it makes the case to me that they, you know, there are certain departments like DEFRA, like DFT, that you know, are, are those areas of DFT that are working very well on electric vehicles. They've gone further than, than we're actually on the charging point rollout than regardless of this Daily Mail sort of campaign that seems to be rolling on. They actually, uh, that's exceeded the CCC's expectations. So you know, it demonstrates the importance of transparency, data to be able to show where we are. But this delivery point, you know, we've got this new department for uh, net zero uh, energy security. But again, it's another vertical. You know, we, we need to take a, an approach which holds these departments to account. You know, what's going to happen now? The CCC report's been published. You know, you know, who's telling DEFRA that they've got to meet sort of yearly sort of targets rather than just sort of think that they can hold on to a another couple of years before making another commitment. And obviously, uh, in the last week, we've seen Zach Goldsmith resign, making quite personal criticism of, of Rishi Sunak's indifference on climate change. Do you, do you share that view? So, I, have, yeah, I, I think sort of 
I mean, you've spoken to many ministers who've resigned in the past, and every minister takes their own sort of personal decision, and often there's a, a, a number of reasons why someone takes a decision uh, to resign. Um, but the challenge for um, the Prime Minister is, is one of, if we do not, yeah, it wasn't one of the five priorities, you know, uh, although I gave a speech in Brussels, and actually three of the, the five priorities can be delivered through action on climate and net zero, and trying to make the case that you know, net zero is not just everyone's priorities. If you want to get inflation down, you know, we've got to focus on yeah, reducing the costs of, of gas and uh, you know, a number of the, the, the points. But he's looking at on government debt again, which has been enhanced by obviously having to focus on paying people's gas bills. It, many of these challenges are faced uniquely in the UK by high gas uh, prices and by our dependence on gas for home heating. Uh, but it's around narrative. And you know, politicians, again, can hope that they could set out some sort of individual sort of policies and that the, the public will thank them for these individual policies. But that's not the case in my experience. Unless you're willing to stand up and give a vision for who you are, for where you're going to, and why you need to take the rest of the country and communities with you, um, you know, that is what is needed at this moment in time uh, to deliver on, on net zero. You know, one of the reasons why I set up a net zero support group last year was because I could see the sort of Nigel Farage's and Richard Tyson's world coming up you know, with disinformation, misinformation around a range of things to do with the energy uh, transition. And staying silent is effectively allowing these individuals to... To, to, to lead the agenda. So having that ability to agenda set is absolutely critical. And the UK has been a leader. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why I'm opposed to a new coking coal mine in Cumbria is that you know, I can listen to the individual arguments around this and you know, there are a variety of arguments around you know, what we might need to do to deliver energy security. But you know, the reality is all of these uh, industries work in international markets. You can't bottle the gas and keep it as like UK gas or you know, decide this is going to be our share of UK oil. It, just in the same way you can't sort of say that to this company it doesn't even you know, exist in the UK, this is going to be somehow our UK coal, UK steel working. You know, the reality is, is that we we're setting ourselves on a trajectory of being a leader in green steel. You know, we want to be a leader when it comes to tackling climate change, having been that first G7 country to sign net zero uh, into law. I think the challenge for Rishi Sunak, though, is you know, when he was chancellor, you know, he held up the green budget. He did do quite a lot of good things around green finance and make some really strong uh, commitments. But commitments are just words on a page unless you follow them through and deliver and you know, grind away. I mean, so much about politics is, is rep not repetition is the wrong word, but committing and committing and demonstrating, you know, I've tried to earn the right to be heard doing net zero, but to start with, people were very skeptical about the review, thing. oh, what's he doing? Is he gonna like pull back on, on net zero? And hopefully people, I've, I've built up trust. I think I've done this, it's probably like almost someone, like nearly the hundredth event since the net zero review has been published, but you, you've got to keep on making the case. And at the moment, there is a vacuum and silence. And, and, and that's the challenge because, you know, otherwise that space will get filled. It'll either get filled by the Labour Party, uh, with their green industrial policy, or it'll get filled by the climate delayers and detractors who then dominate the front pages of the Telegraph and the Mail. And that's the challenge. You know, if, you, if you're not willing to show leadership, someone else will. The risk is that leadership, you, you lose control of the ability to show where that narrative will go. And just building on that, I mean, you talk about uh, the sort of Nigel Farage approach and so on. What, what do you think about the prospects in Parliament for, for the narrative on 
on net zero after another election if, uh, according to the polls, there's a, there's a Labour administration of some kind and a Conservative leadership election. Do you think there's a danger that the Conservative consensus on climate change might break down? I think it will depend on the scale of uh, whoever wins. Yeah, what's the majority? I think that's sort of a, not necessarily an open secret, um, but you'll have a, a situation where you, that, you know, potentially, you know, if Labour take power, I mean, this, it's a, a long way for them to form a majority, and that's yeah. the other thing that you know, the, 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 the Labour could end up with in a, in a confidence supply or coalition, and you know, there's all these different sort of, I, you know, I don't have skin in this game as such, so uh, giving a sort of independent analysis of it from afar, um, you know, if, if the Conservatives do lose power, uh, if they, I, I think the challenge is if, if, if they're in a place where the fewer seats they have, potentially, like the Labour Party, the further rightwards they go. Um, and that's the challenge around, you know, when you look at those seats that are the safer, you know, sort of they'll have a smaller selectorate of MPs deciding who the leader uh, would be. And the challenges the Conservatives have faced you know, in the early 2000s is, is you know, they make strategically horrific decisions which keep them out of power uh, for, 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 for many years. And that includes, I think, net zero, which is you know, not necessarily phrased as net zero, yeah. but taking action on the environment, on supporting nature, on, on helping communities build uh, and rewild and you know, create local biodiversity. You know, all these are key priorities and we've just lost a lot of seats to the Greens and the Liberal Democrats uh, in the south of England uh, and you know having a sort of core focus on you know prioritizing opening up you know oil uh, sort of uh, fields that won't be open until 2047 or you know quite a long yeah it sets itself apart from maybe the priorities of a large number of the British public who, who place climate change behind uh, the economy and the NHS. Uh, you know, the reality is that you know, tackling climate change also benefits the NHS, all these co-benefits as well that we can talk about, and that's a separate question about how to frame net zero. Because I, I do think about this, you know, we've, got, we've got the commitment on decarbonisation 28 years, but will net zero, you know, as the overarching framework, you know, it will be up for you know, other politicians as well as myself to think about how do, we, how do we build and protect support. You can never guarantee statically. You've got to continually innovate, uh, and I'm sure that will happen also. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to take a round of questions from the room. I will take them in tranches or of two or three, so please wait for the microphone until it reaches you. Okay. Maddie, there's a gentleman in the corner there. Please let us know who you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, Richard McCrory. Um, I'm on the board of the, a new body called the Office for Environmental Protection, but I'm speaking in my private capacity. You said there was a need for a new office for net zero delivery, and I think you, the words you said, you know, who's going to hold government to account? I mean, the only thing I would point out, I, I see the Climate Change Committee is, in a sense is holding the government politically to account because its reports are to Parliament. But the Office for Environmental Protection does have jurisdiction in climate change law. We work closely with the Climate Change Committee and can take legal enforcement action if there is ever a breach of duty by government. I'm not saying it will yet. So I think there is a body there which can do, if, if that's what you meant, holding them to account by actually using the legal, legal tools to do so. Okay, any more questions? Gentleman here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Neil Mehta from Deloitte. Framing co-benefits versus core benefits, mm -hmm. 
In fact, thinking about the lessons from the US, the Inflation Reduction Act, doesn't say net zero in the title. Can we, should we be framing this more about cost of living, health, jobs, and livelihoods? Thanks, and there's a gentleman in the front. Uh, John Burt, House of Lords, I start by congratulating you. I think you've done a fantastic job in keeping um, net zero on the agenda. From my vantage point in the House of Lords, however, I think the problem is far worse, dare I say, than you suggest. I think you're rather kindly. Um, I don't see any evidence of government seriously planning for any of the key elements that you have um, identified. Um, we have 30 million homes and buildings in this country, overwhelmingly heated by gas. Um, uh, we have a, an entrenched national gas network. Most of these homes are not insulated. The uh, cost of electricity is three times, which fuels heat pumps, three times that of gas. I really don't see any long-term, cogent, coherent planning uh, at work here at all. I think, as I said in the House of Lords, government has declared a net zero target and gone off to the pub. And I think, uh, I think the same is true. You are more kindly about the national charging network for EVs than I would be. I don't think it's anything like as coherent um, and as present as, as it needs to be. And it's likely to hold up what's been a rapid take-up of electric vehicles, but the evidence is it's, it's levelling off. And the, the common parlance is it's a bit tough having an electric vehicle. I could go on, but I will stop yeah. there. Okay, so IEP, uh, co-benefits uh, versus uh, core benefits, and uh, are you just too optimistic here? Yeah, I think... I mean, I agree, having all the institutions that are able to sort of commit, making sure that institutions also don't work against each other and have the, yeah, the ability for those major people involved in major projects to be able to yeah, almost have a single point of contact yeah, would be helpful. Um, but the, the net zero sort of office net zero delivery was almost like a sort of OBR, which would say, right, this is definitely you are on, on, you know, off track by... X megatons, and you need to therefore come back and deliver on this, and, and try to think strategically about some of those questions. Um, I think net zero is obviously has has been around for four years in the UK as, as a legal commitment. I was keen to you know, make sure that net zero was you know obviously it doesn't enter a culture war. It's seen as a mainstream economic, the very least that we can do. You know, there's, the challenge with net zero is you're walking a tightrope because on the one hand, people say it doesn't go far enough and yeah, there's sort of, you know, it, it's kicking the can down the road, but obviously if you set it within the 2030 parameters of what you need to achieve, it, it, we'll come on to pathway in a moment, you can sort of make the case for why it's not sort of just about 2050. But then obviously you've got people on the other side who are, um, you know, wanting to tear it down, saying it's all a sort of mad eco-project that's sort of going too far too fast. And you know, these sort of new climate delayers become the new climate deniers in this sort of like new narrative. Um, but you know, net zero has, has sort of succeeded in, in ways that all other climate frameworks have sort of failed. Um, you know, where they tried to do parts per million of CO2 in the past and you know, didn't get cut through. Uh, and it's got cut through because I think you know, industry and business can understand it as a sort of almost on the, you know, 
uh, that act around balancing and, and what needs to be achieved. So I'm keen to make sure that sort of, you know, we don't, we don't just replace some, something with like for like, rephrasing it. We, we, we've got to be able to commit. And, you know, it's a bit like, you know, 75th anniversary of the NHS today. You know, sort of actually, this is a long-term project that also will go beyond 2050. Uh, and thinking around that sort of, you know, yes, the actual challenges around you know, what and who and why and how will always change. Um, but we've also got to be sort of proud and be committed to it and not hide our light under a bushel. Uh, and I think that's also a, a challenge. Obviously, America's so far behind us. You know, I think, about, I said this uh, in Brussels yesterday, when you look at, like, you know, what's happened in s states with moratoriums or sort of, like, rowback on ESG commitments and investment there, actually, every local authority is pushing this government to go further. We actually have an inverse situation, you know, in comparison uh, to the states. So I think, you know, we've got to be obviously careful uh, to, to take public confidence with us but, but you know I, I always believe in the case of you know winning the moral argument and, and my worry is that sort of we might shy away from doing it um and I, I also think that yeah this is when you see the nature of our democratic press means obviously it gives a platform to about 10 people in parliament who then are claimed to be like the entire voice of the Tory party which is why I set up the net zero support group to counter the net zero scrutiny group because they're not in my name are they acting on behalf of the conservative backbench uh, and so you, we trying to make sure that you, you face sort of people down and say, well, actually, that's not true. And you can't, and it's always, it's always more difficult now, but equally don't give people the victory of saying, oh, well, that we've abandoned net zero because we just decided it's too, it put in the too difficult box to sell. It's like thinking about this. And then obviously in terms of accountability frameworks, you know, the, the carbon budgets that we have have been so successful in, in holding government, not, maybe not just politicians, but officials, to account on meeting the carbon budgets. So obviously, we've been on track to start with. Obviously, it's it becomes more and more difficult as we, we move into the 2030s as well to sort of set out those commitments. And we do, yeah, we do need that programmatic long-term approach, I'm not denying that. That was what sort of the vision of, of, of the Net Zero Review was about. Now, are the government tentatively making steps towards that? I mean, again, I always think, like, you gotta, can't really talk, there's no such thing as government, it's departments, and there's the treasury, and it's getting the treasury to, to recognise the fiscal imperative and the investment opportunity that this will make, and it's, you know, there's sort of teasing chinks of light here in the armour, which is sort of, you know, they've committed to 20 billion pounds over 20 years for CCUS. Well, if they can do it for CCUS, why can't you do it for retrofit? Um, They've renamed ECHO and the, 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 the retrofit program, the Great British Retrofit Scheme. And that sounds like maybe they are going to move into a, a situation where they might put some money behind it. They might sort of learn the lessons of the past. I think for me, the, the Net Zero Review is, was also, how do you get that, how do you sell policies that, are, that demonstrate the scale of the challenge, like you, you, you articulated, but also break down that challenge into deliverable sort of, yeah, what are the prioritization you need? So buildings is an interesting one. What we did is we created a, a net zero distribution analysis tool in the net zero review. I was also keen that it wasn't just anecdotal. It was based on yeah, actual running numbers uh, through sort of data modeling. So we had, I think, 36 different types of housing. And we said, yeah, these are the houses where potentially you will end up making a rate of return. But there are 4 million households that won't make a rate of return. And that's where you need to prioritize. And government needs to sort of set out, you know, single skin buildings, so, you know, understanding, you know, where we need to act sooner rather later. 
uh, because the other way is the narrative is people are like, oh, you're going to rip out, you know, here, I'm not sure there's double glazing or not, but sort of, you know, you're, you're going to be historic houses and we're going to sort of rip it. And, and that also allows the detractors to, so yeah, a, a lack of clarity as well as a lack of ambition is also something that, that, that you know, this government has, I think, has, has begun to, you know, identify areas of prioritization as whether they've got the, either both the political will and also the, the energy. Uh, obviously, they've got the, the, the energy bill is a, is a good thing. It, everyone needs, we need the energy bill to, to, to go into, to happen. And, um, you know, things like the hydrogen business models, the CCS business models, you know, have huge promise. Um, but setting out, as I said earlier, that vision and putting investment behind it is yeah, a step that we've not yet seen being taken. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw the session to a close because we've reached the end of uh, this slot. Um, and I don't want to be responsible for making the whole day run late because my colleagues would kill me. Um, can I ask everyone to thank Chris uh, for uh, joining us today? <laughs>